Well, welcome everyone. Happy to see all of you. And I, um, of course, want to share with you in this last session of our time together in this course, some of the ideas for practice that I've been thinking about and also hopefully encourage a sense of urgency in, in developing practices to realize non-self, to, to try to help our mind take in that reality. And we'll have the usual format of, I'll give a bit of a Dhamma reflection and there'll be a short period for clarifying questions. And then um, a guided meditation and a little bio break if needed. Some time talking in small groups and sharing our practice and then coming back together for more Q&A. So I, I'm just gonna share some ideas about non-self that we haven't really talked about very much so far. In particular, how do we really apply that, uh, that concept? How do we make use of it in our life? And Ajahn Chah said that among the Buddha's teachings, anatta or non-self is the greatest method for overcoming suffering. That's a pretty strong statement. And given the fact that the Buddha was so, so into method, um, as one monk said once to me, very um, advanced practitioner, that the Buddha was all about method. And so I'm uh, going to share some of the ways in which Anatta can be used to overcome suffering. I mean, much of this might be obvious to you already, but I want to uh, try to get in a little bit more uh, in deeper, a little bit more deeply into how that works. So we, we mentioned before, I think this, um, there's an idiom in Pali that can be translated as eye-making and mind-making and conceit. This is one big long word, ahankara, mamankara, mana. And it's all strung together. How we create this idea of me and mine and the conceit of, you know, the self. It could be translated as ego, possessiveness, and conceit. And that if we look at it from this perspective, all of suffering has this underpinning. So by unpacking that and letting it go, we free ourselves from suffering. So we have this habit of eye making and mind making, mind making, this underlying tendency to conceit. This is me, this is myself, 
and I own this or this is mine. And that's the place from which we, we start the, the suffering. Obviously, there are other paradigms through which we see the process of dukkha arising and ceasing. But for this purpose, we can really, looking at it this way, we can approach the practice um, in a way that can be really beneficial. So when we're doing this, the body and feelings and the rest of the khandas, and also, as we talked about this, the senses and all of the aspects of sense experience that that are involved, you know, these are things that we can see arise and pass away. And we can make the determination to let them be, let them be as they are, to see them as they are and not pick them up as something that is our identity. Ajahn Chah used to say, that in addition to saying that anatta is you know, the, the most powerful or the greatest method in overcoming suffering, he also said that anatta is simple. The phone rings and you don't pick it up. So the body aches and you don't pick it up. Someone says something harsh and you don't pick it up. And I remember someone visiting the nuns in Ajahn Chah's monastery. And as you know, women don't have the same privileges and support that men do in the monastic life. You probably have heard that. And Ajahn Chah uh, made sure that the nuns had the requisites and he gave them teachings and he actually made a good place for them. But they still, in that society, were never seen at the level of the monks. And someone asked, they had none. How do you deal with that? And she said, it's like that rock over there. Is it heavy? The person said, well, yeah, it's huge. She said, only if you pick it up. I just don't pick it up. Now, of course, we can say there are many things that we, we do need to pick up. We have responsibility for. And that's, that's the the value of the application of wisdom. So there are time, there's a time and place for addressing things and it's important to, when it's important to address them, but there's also a time for letting them go and not making them about us. So I'm gonna share with you 12 practice ideas and explain them. These are things that I, I hope you will take into your life and find maybe a few here that are helpful and mm, I hope really um, inspiring and open the way for insight. So, you don't have to write these down or anything. They're going to appear in the chat at the end. And we'll just, and, and then we'll, there will be time for questions so we can clarify anything that isn't quite clear. So the first one I'm calling it 
just to see the cause of suffering. So if we are experiencing dukkha, or we are in a situation that clearly is fraught with suffering, one of the ways that we can begin to unpack it, tease it apart, understand its cause, which is, of course, the second noble truth to, you know, first of all, we, we recognize that there is suffering, first noble truth. Second noble truth is we identify the cause. There's always a cause. Something's creating it. And we can, we can look at this eye-making, mind-making, and underlying tendency to conceit, for conceit. That's, uh, we can look at that as the template through which we're going to view the cause of the suffering. And we'll find something there, some way in which we're creating an identity around whatever this experience is. Or we might see it in other people. Uh, the, the way in which they're taking something in as me or mine, I'm offended or I'm hurt. Now, I'm not saying this to um, kind of ignore or discount the importance of being present with our feelings. We, we want to do that. And we want to have the kindness there and the mindfulness there and the wisdom there to be a, a, a respond appropriately. So don't misunderstand. But this a way of looking at things can help us begin to let go of the ways in which we identify and create an identity that we really uh, don't need to do, that we really can let go of. So that's the first one. The second one I'm just calling don't take a stance. In many situations when we have views and opinions, they're not crucial. We can decide to not hold on to them. And you know, we we tend to take a position and hold on to it and solidify it. And sometimes our position becomes stronger if someone else takes another position, even stronger than we would naturally make it. And we can watch out for that dynamic. We can observe this tendency to form views and opinions and then let them just watch them arise and pass away. If we don't fuel them, they'll pass away. And we can avoid a lot of suffering in places where we actually um, can create more happiness if, if we had gone down the path that many of us have a habit of going down with our views and opinions, we would actually be creating discord and suffering. Again, we have to know when to use this kind of method and when it's important to speak up about what's going on. The third one I want to share is I'm calling, now it's not my title actually, it's uh, one that comes from Master Wa, who is a great uh, meditation master and teacher in the, in the Chinese tradition. I don't know if you've heard of the City of 10,000 Buddhas or Berkeley Buddhist Monastery, and there are a number of other 
of other locations that were started by Master Wa. But through Reverend Hungshur, he talked about how Master Wa would say, take a loss. So that's what I'm calling this third one. When an argument arises, unless it's going to cause harm, let go. Let go of your position. So that's the practice. And Ajahn Pasano told a story of the Desert Fathers. And he said two, two of the Desert Fathers living together for many years um, in harmony, and they never had an argument. And then one day one of them said to the other, you know, we've, we've never argued about anything. And, and other people in the world argue about things. And the other desert father said, so how does that, why, why do they argue? And the first one said, well, like take this brick here. Uh, if if one, one person says it's mine and another person says, no, that's mine. And then they argue about it. And then uh, the, other, the other desert father said, well, let's try it. And he said, okay. This brick is mine. And the other one said, it's mine. And the first one said, well, if it's yours, then take it. And it's, um, yes, if we can take that attitude, maybe we can just practice with this. Like, how can I approach things differently? If that's something that, you know, erupts in my life. Is there a way to, to work with it in a, in a different way? Another idea is to stop comparing ourselves. You know, the, the common one, I'm better, I'm worse, or I'm the same. And stop giving unsolicited advice. This one's really difficult it was for me i realized um quite a few years ago that i had that tendency and particularly with my children and i started to wait for them to ask for my opinion which i thought was never going to happen <laughs> but eventually it did and it's very powerful now, a number of these are really practices of renunciation. And renunciation often sounds like we're going to have to do without something we like or do without something we find supportive. And there's a tendency to want to back away from, from it. But actually, it's a way to free ourselves. And I'm not just saying this as a Buddhist nun. This is something I did as a layperson, too. Um, before becoming a nun, learning that if we find some habit that we have, that actually will be so much freer if we um, can stop engaging in that habit. Or at the beginning, we might try this because someone else is having trouble with uh, our habit. Uh, and we want to see what really happens if we resist. And it's it's renunciation. This is this is really what I what I feel like renunciation is about. 
there is some habit that we have, like maybe comparing ourselves to others or maybe giving unsolicited advice or any number of these other things I'm mentioning. And then we decide for a particular period of time that we're not going to do that. We're going to resist the, the urge. And so, you know, maybe, um, maybe just for a day or two or a week, we set a time. I'm going to do this for this period of time. And then we notice how strong the feeling becomes because the feeling behind it is growing out of this sense of me, me and my opinion, me and my view, me and my rights. Um, you know, so if there's this very strong desire, it can even kind of come from a very fundamental survival you know, kind of experience or sense. But in actuality, we know using our wisdom and our perception that nothing's going to happen, nothing major is going to go wrong if I resist giving this person my advice. <laughs> and so to be able to hold back and really look at how it feels and then be able to hold back and watch the results in other people. So I'll tell you another story. Um, from my experience, I was, this was with my husband. Um, he was having some problems with his heart, his an arrhythmia. And he, for years, took a medication to stabilize it. And then he became allergic to that medication and went into the doctor and the doctor gave him um, a few options. And the one that he was thinking of doing was uh, an ablation procedure. And at that time in my life, I was pretty skeptical of some kind of medical interventions. And I would have immediately given him my opinion about this, except that I had decided to practice noble silence for a few days. And I didn't tell him that. I was just practicing noble silence. And I thought he might notice some difference in my behavior. We'll see if he does. But in any case, this is what I'm doing. So when he told me about the visit to the doctor and everything that he was thinking about, and I was really quietly listening. And at the end, he said, thank you so much for listening to me. It was, um, <laughs> it was like, he was so grateful. And I almost felt like not telling him why, why I was so restrained. Um, but it was a really beautiful lesson for me of how important it, it can be to um, change our work with what it's like to change our habits. Excuse me. Just a minute. What it's like to change our habits and and to see how it changes the way we look at things and the way others experience us. So I know maybe none of you have any of these habits, <laughs> but just in case you want to try one of these practices, um, I would encourage encourage it.
The next one on my list, I'm calling leave it. That's a little like dog training. I know it sounds like, but in a way um, it is, you know, sometimes we feel compelled to jump in on something, uh, maybe at work or maybe at home, um, where our input isn't really necessary. And we can decide to just not pick that up. I mean, for myself, if I feel responsible for everything that happens at the monastery and then I see something going a little bit wrong and I could like uh, just jump in and say something or run over and say something. And I do have this tendency. But when I, when I hold back and I just let, let people resolve whatever is going on, it can be so much more peaceful and kind and respectful. So um, that's another, another specific one I, I would include in this list. Um, the next one is about dropping speculative views. They arise out of the sense of self. They come from the identity view. And that's the first fetter that is left behind when we enter the stream with stream entry. And it's speculative views, you know, having, um, thinking about and talking about things that are, there's really no end to it. There's really no resolution. It's not something that we can know directly. And so it causes us to spin. And actually, it's often found that this subject of anatta uh, really brings up a lot of that kind of questioning a lot of times. And as you've seen over these weeks, sometimes I'll ask us to think about, is this, is the answer to this question going to help us on the path or not? So this is just something to, to really reflect on. Like if I'm, if I'm spinning on something, if I'm asking something that really it's, it's kind of like picking things apart in a way that doesn't really bring a result that's going to help our practice, that's going to help us on the path and pull back from it, to let it go. And letting go of labels and boundaries. And this isn't particularly in meditation. So there was a point where Ajahn Chah was having a recurring problem in his meditation. And uh, it was with the limits of perception. And what he realized with some uh, guidance from a teacher was that we set up these boundaries ourselves. You know, ideas of how things should be, ideas of how things are, instead of going deep into meditation and just observing, um, we tend to uh, construct things. We have assumptions. And if we can, if we can recognize that and drop the, the labels for things um, and, and to realize that not only that we construct our own aggregates, our own perceptions, our own thoughts, our own boundaries, our own ideas about things. And this is an area to, to examine. How can I see things as they really are? You know, our, our labels and definitions and perceptions are, are valuable in operating in the world. But when it comes to going deep into understanding reality, 
We need to see through them. And actually that's, that's what vipassana means, seeing through. Seeing things um, when, they, when we really understand things, they cease to be a problem. And then letting things be like our kundas, letting the body be the way it is, feelings, perceptions, mental activity, consciousness, letting it be the way it is. So uh, we can investigate with mindfulness, clear comprehension and kindness, and see that these things simply arise and cease. And we can ask, is this mine? And is it me? And not pick it up. So it's uh, and it's a little related. Then the next one I'm going to talk about is is really coming out of one of the readings, out of the reading about Anatapindika as he's approaching death. How do we let go of eye, ear, nose, tongue, body, mind, sight, sounds, etc. And it can be a challenge. Um, like the other day, I had this experience where a small, very tiny live gnat got into my eye and um, it made it, you know, kind of irritated and sore. And, you know, feeling that, you know, you can, you can think, okay, how do I let go of the eye when it's making itself so present? But to just that, that this arises and it will cease. The feeling, the eye itself. You know, and, and we can observe it and let it go. If it's, not my, if it's not mine, if it's not me, if I understand that, no suffering is needed. You can have pain, but there's no need to suffer through it. So the 10th one, I'm going to, you'll see all these in text on in the chat in a little bit, but this practicing for death of letting go, not letting the clinging and grasping and clinging arise or letting it go for all these different elements, all of the the sense ex things that are involved in sense experience, like we talked about last week, uh, the, the internal sense spaces, the external sense spaces, the consciousness related to each of those, the contact, the feeling, you know, letting it go. The six elements, uh, the guided meditation today will be about the six elements. And seeing what, what it means to not depend upon or let go of our identification with earth, water, fire, air, space, and consciousness. And the five aggregates. And then the different dimensions of immaterial mental states like infinite space, infinite consciousness, nothingness neither perception nor non-perception. This is all in that teaching that Venerable Sariputta gave to the householder Anuttapindaka when he was dying. You know, maybe the way to do this is, or the way I do it, it's a 
I practice it lying down. And then notice what's arising in each of these categories. It also includes thoughts of this world, the other world, not clinging to this world. Imagine, or the other world where we think we might be going, or whatever is seen, heard, thought, known, sought, or explored by the mind. And just lying down, eyes closed, tuning into breathing. Noticing through any of these sort of facets of these, these components, how do I identify with this? What am I, what am I clinging to? What is it like to let it go? I mean, when we die, we're going to have to let go of everything. And we can be free from the suffering of clinging now. So that's really the point. Now there are a couple of practices that I'm going to encourage at the end here. Um, one I call clearing the slate. It's um, it's a practice that comes from the evening chanting that we do at the monastery, and it says, "By body, speech, or mind." For whatever wrong action I've committed towards the Buddha, may my acknowledgement of fault be accepted, that in the future there may be restraint regarding the Buddha. And then it goes through the same thing for the Dhamma, the same thing for the Sangha. And the idea is a reflection on the day. And whatever I've said or done or thought, that's not in alignment with, and in here, I wouldn't, I don't think um, thinking of the historical Buddha is quite the right thing, but we could think of the Buddha as really representing the higher mind. Again, Buddha means awakened mind. And we can look at the Dhamma as, as the higher wisdom, the truth of the way things actually are. And the Sangha is the higher virtue. So as you know, this course, the sort of subtitle is developing virtue, meditation, and wisdom. And the Buddha often talks about developing higher wisdom, higher mind, and higher virtue. And so I think that's the correlation. So we can, you know, use a practice like every, every evening really clearing the sleep or whatever way. Now, it's very important to pick up any of these practices in the right way, not as a way to beat ourselves up or put ourselves down or feel guilty about anything, but as a means of encouragement, encouraging ourselves, also reflecting on all the good, all the ways in which we align with higher wisdom, higher virtue, and higher mind. The ways that we're practicing to make that a reality in our life. It's very important that we maintain that balance of really inspiring ourselves and therefore uh, perhaps naturally others feel a bit of that too from us 
but mainly looking at how do we lift up our own mind, our own heart. And then that gentle, kind encouragement for more. Um, and, and through that, through all these practices, letting go of what really causes us to suffer. The final one is, the, is to recite the five subjects for frequent recollection, which I included in the, in the study guide. I am of the nature to sicken. I have not gone beyond sickness. I'm of the nature to age. I have not gone beyond aging. I'm of the nature to die. Actually, it might not all be in there aging. I'm of the nature to die. I've not gone beyond dying. All that is mine, beloved and pleasing, will become otherwise, will become separated from me. I'm the owner of my karma heir to my comma, born of my comma, related to my comma. I abide supported by my comma. Whatever comma I shall do for good or for ill, that I will be the heir. The Buddha said this is something we should frequently recollect. And the, the, the wonderful part of it is that most of the time we're doing making good karma, helping um, ourselves and each other get along in the world. And all too often we don't notice that. But we can, we can make it a habit. So you will see those 12 um, things show up. I believe in the chat, there's a new message. There they are. I think sometimes this idea of anatta can seem complicated, but really, as Ajahn Chah said, it's quite simple. And if we keep it simple, I think we can make some real progress using it. So I'd love to see if there are any questions and you can put them in the chat for Sarah to read out. You can send them to Sarah, I believe. And, um, or you can raise your hand your computer hand. I'm happy to hear questions or complaints. <laughs> yes, Lydia? Uh, yes, I have a question about the advice to Anata Pindika. Mm -hmm. um, when uh, uh, when Buddha is uh, talking about the consciousness here, he says, um, is it Buddha? No, it's, yeah, Shariputta, I think. Yeah. Yes. So he's saying about 
eye consciousness, ear consciousness, I will not cling to tongue consciousness, body consciousness, and uh, my mind consciousness, and my consciousness will not be dependent on mind consciousness. So my question is, what's this my consciousness? <laughs> what is he talking about? <laughs> yeah, yes. I know. He enumerated all the consciousness, and then he says, my consciousness. <laughs> yes, I know. It can seem very confusing. And I, the way I take it is to, um, is to go to what it feels like. So he's, he's listing all these components that he traditionally, you know, that the Buddha uses to try to identify the various things we cling to, right? So in that case, I mean, the word consciousness can be used in different ways and and it is here. And the mind consciousness is just that, um, that part of our mental activity that makes sense of the thoughts that arise in the mind. So you've got the mind and you've got the thoughts arising and then mind consciousness makes sense of it. And it's pretty elementary in that way, that consciousness, that kind of consciousness. And the consciousness that he's saying, don't let your the, don't let your consciousness depend on something. That's more this this sense of me, or this sense of maybe you could say knowing. Don't let that sort of depend upon any of these things that are passing away. And so I think that. You can get the sense of that better in meditation as a feeling. Like, you know, just feeling what it's like to let go of dependency upon some of these things that are more concrete and then any aspect that we're still clinging to, which could be just the the ability to be conscious of something. And then, you know, it's like that part that's observing or that part that is, is doing the letting go. We have to kind of call it something. I think here it's being called consciousness, but that does make it seem really confusing. <laughs> and it's, it's just for lack of um, maybe any other way to put it. Thank Does you. that help? Yes, yes, because I thought, is there any other consciousness? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Thank you. You're welcome. Do you have anything, Sarah? Yeah, one question just came in. Um, okay. Can you speak more about karma in the five subjects of recollection and how that mm-hmm. informs non-self? Yeah, so... When we take action, of course, that causes results. We all can observe that. And we can observe many instances where we do something that's kind, wholesome, and there are these positive results. And we can also observe when we're harsh or um, unwholesome, maybe acting out of greed or hatred that there can be negative results from that. 
when the Buddha wanted us to recognize that this is kind of the natural law and that this, this idea that we have this um, sort of energy history <laughs> of karma and we can, um, that's actually what keeps us kind of going in a sense, you know, the karma is, is what um, kind of sets up our, our future experience. And we don't have to react to it in the same way. The most important, you know, that's where our free will, our choice comes in when something happens. That we can, we can respond to it in a way that um, changes the trajectory of that pattern, that karmic pattern. So one way to think of it is when we die, we can't take our, our possessions with us, our wealth, our, our job. We can't take our professional distinction. We can't take our family members or our own body or virtually really anything. We can't take anything in this world with us, but what comes with us is the results of our good and bad actions. That that's, that's, part, that's our character, that, that develops our character. You know, if we have a habit that we keep doing something like, like lying or, or cheating, you know, eventually it becomes part of our character. That's the simple way of thinking about karma. But if we do things like, like we're generous and kind and we help people and, and we open our heart when we see someone suffering, that becomes part of our character. So this is what we own and nothing else. Karen? Yeah, thank you so much for your generous teachings. I also have a questions about the readings and particularly um, the reading um, before um, the advice on Anathapindika and mm -hmm. that's the non-identification on Guttara Nikaya 6104. Mm -hmm. It says, I will have unshared knowledge. Mm. I'm a bit confused and I was wondering whether you could explain. Thank you. Yeah. What that really means is knowledge that's not readily, it's not available through the intellect. It's the knowledge that comes through direct experience. Oftentimes, it's quite different than what we expect. I mean, like we might have an idea, some assumptions or some model in our mind about how things work. And then some realization comes and it's, it's a knowing that's not shared with people who haven't done that kind of investigation. That's what they mean. Thank you very much. And could, could it maybe say unshareable knowledge? I think you could because uh, from the perspective that you know, the Buddha could tell us about what he discovered and we can tell each other about we've, what we've discovered, but we only can really know it directly. So when he talks about Dhamma as what you have to experience directly, 
uh, it really isn't shareable in that way. It's not any more shareable than, you know, the taste of uh, a ripe pear. You know, if you've never tasted it, um, you know, I could try to explain it, but it it won't it won't do the job. <laughs> yeah. Anything more, Sarah? You'll raise your hand, right? If um, okay, yeah, we can keep all three. Oh yeah. So um, another, I'd be interested in how to get go, how to let go of real physical pain, like it was described in the Sutta. What are the steps leading to being able to do so? To let go of real physical pain? Yeah, I mean it's challenging. Um, even for the Buddha, he had backaches, um, headaches, and he talked about uh, near the end of his life how he, his back ached all the time unless he went into deep meditation. So it's not to say that we can calm the pain necessarily, but people do have good results with processes like mindfulness-based stress reduction. Uh, you may have already, you know, may already be, um, you know, aware of that too. So the degree to which we can come to it with mindfulness and kindness, relax around the pain, we can probably lessen the effect. And then the, the, the recollection all the time that this is temporary and noticing any moments when the pain subsides i mean nothing is really continuous so as we put our attention on the points where the pain is lessening that's very useful and and perhaps completely gone so first it's reducing any tightness around the pain that causes the pain to actually become more solid any thoughts about what this is going to mean? How long is this going to last? All of those things we can, you know, work with letting setting those aside, and then noticing those times when the pain has is gone, and recognizing that, and of course doing whatever we can through medical means to try to um, calm the pain. And I have to say, I'm not a, a, an expert personally on chronic pain, um, but Venerable Bhikkhu Bodhi is, he's had headaches, uh, serious pressure in the head ever since he started translating actually so many years ago. So you could look for talks of his about pain. I know he gave one at um, Insight Meditation Center in Redwood City once when I was present. And I would imagine he's probably talked about it in other places. Amy? Hi. Hi. Um, I am so touched by the third paragraph in the Mitakali about <clears throat> my life is short, trampled by old age and sickness before this body breaks apart there is no time for me to be careless. And at my point in life, um, I feel like what more 
could be revealed to me uh, for me to remember my true nature. And yet I see, I turn my back on myself. Um, and I have a feeling of remorse, not, not like a reactive, you know, guilt or, but a real sadness. Um, and I'm just wondering if that feeling uh, can be used um, for a sense of urgency mm -hmm. in the right way. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. And the feeling of sadness, you can use it in different ways. Um, and you have to make a, a decision, use your wisdom to know which way is going to really be helpful to you. So, you know, you could find something in this list of a dozen things to look at where, what am I clinging to in terms of my identity? What am I sad for? My, what am I sad about losing or what am I sad about what happened or another really good way that that might not be the right approach. Another approach is to be present with that sadness, feel it in your body and work with that felt sense in the body instead. Yeah. And, you know, you, you want to use um, any method you try, just try it and then see how it, how it's working. If it's causing you more suffering, stop, change direction. The Buddha gave so many tools. Okay. And um, I think I mentioned before, when, I, when working with the feelings in the body, doing something like uh, somatic experiencing, maybe finding a therapist who does somatic experiencing to help, or doing something like looking at feeding your demons by Lama Sultramalioni. And then the point is, when we're experiencing dukkha, that's our that's our um, indication. It's it's our it's our alarm system that tells us that there is something here that we can discover in order to become free. And and so the Buddha says, you know, the first noble truth: recognize that there's dukkha. This is really the key. And then once we, we are experiencing dukkha, if we see it not just as a burden, as, as a source of suffering and misery, but as an opportunity to understand what we're clinging to, what, what kind of a, a false identity are we, are we carrying, and we, and we look through it. So as long as we're suffering, we, we've got the the burden and we've got the opportunity to put that burden down. And so it is, it is wonderful to recognize, yeah, there's not that much time left, no matter how long we think we're going to live. We've got these incredible conditions in our life with the Dhamma right here in front of us and good okay. friends to practice with. And we should put the pedal to the metal, <laughs> do everything <laughs> we can. <laughs> Okay. Sarah? Um, so another question um, that came in. Some teachers talk of a universal consciousness that is beyond the six spaces. What are your thoughts on this? I'm not sure I've seen this position in the public. Hmm. 
Now, true, they've seen this position in, in the canon. Right. Yeah, um, you might be referring to, especially in the Thai forest tradition, people will talk about pure consciousness or maybe the chitta never dies, uh, that kind of thing. And I, I don't know if they call it universal. That's probably not the way they would talk about it. But so I, I think to be to see that these kinds of statements are still in line with the Dhamma is to recognize that they're describing or using different ways of trying to describe Nibbana. So like Ajahn Sumedho, for one, he'll talk about pure consciousness. And there's a talk out there that you can find that's what the heck is pure consciousness? <laughs> and when the monk who's um, asking these questions asks him that, he just he laughs and then he describes, you know, and I think it's in that talk where he says, you can, you can call it mindfulness, you can call it pure consciousness, you can call it Nibbana, it's the same thing. It's, it's looking at the same thing from different facets, from different perspectives. And so it depends on the context. So um, I believe that when we hear that kind of thing, we want to make the distinction between this kind of philosophy that says, um, you know, we're, we're all one or we're going to become like one with everything. Uh, because that is not what the Buddha taught. That's that's in the the part of false views, uh, speculative views. He the Buddha only looked at what he could directly observe and experience, which is really powerful. He never oversteps that. And when he asks the mendicants that he's with, you know, do you see this? Anything that's self, you know, do you do you see how saying I'll be one with the world and I'll last forever is a foolish teaching, you know, that we covered earlier. So, you know, watch out for that kind of flavor of things and come back to, you know, recognizing that there is the deathless. And, you know, when someone who's actually seen that tries to talk about it, we may not be able to quite grasp what they're saying until we've seen it ourselves. But to hold that in, um, hold it in contemplation and see where it takes us. Wesley? Um, thank you, Aya. I've, I've uh, really appreciated all, all of the sessions uh, over the uh, past few weeks, so thank you. Um, um, now, I, this is, a, I guess, a really good opportunity for me to ask you this question because, you know, you've raised children, uh, evidently you've been married, uh, and now uh, you're a monastic, if that's the proper term I can use. Yeah. Um, and so, <clears throat> uh, but I want to be very practical. Uh, this actually has theoretical ramifications, but it also has very practical practical ramifications for me in someone who is trying to find the truth, trying to understand anatta, uh, and yet he was a householder. And um, as, a, as a probably a, a quintessential example, a few years ago, about five years ago now, I was suddenly diagnosed with a life-threatening illness. Uh, and the instructions that I received from uh, the doctor 
was that you have to fight this. Hmm. And that, you know, was the, you, in getting, um, working up uh, lots of energy and looking at this illness as something that you need to conquer has been clinically shown to be one of the better ways of addressing this. Um, I utilized that and I was continually very, I find instinctually looking at my family as in uh, not leaving my family behind. uh, And I, you know, I had a daughter who was then uh, around six, you know, and so that was the vision that I had. It was, it was this, I did not want, I did not feel that it was time to be leaving her behind. And uh, that, it, you know, on the scale of things. So, you know, there is, you know, Rahula, you know, the name. <laughs> and um, uh, just questions around a householder's approach to uh, Anatta and whether that changes uh, with a monastic. Uh, mm-hmm. And um, also the final uh, thing I would... Um, put in there is the notion of the greater good uh, and, and self. Uh, I right now do a bit of that when I'm trying to navigate situations mm-hmm. and issues. It's like, what, what's my motivation here? Is it, mm-hmm. is it to kind of do a one-up and to inflate? Or is it just trying to look what the best course of action would be in, in for my family or for the people I work with? Or, or that person on the street. Um, but yeah, so I'll leave it at there. I'd really appreciate you commenting and on And if you will, on your own path, uh, I would really appreciate that. Thank you. Mm-hmm. Well, I think you've already got the idea. Mm-hmm. It's like the more this, this false idea of self is seen through, the more we recognize that it's like a cardboard cutout, full-size cardboard cutout, um, you know, of ourselves. And then when you look at it, it's really, it's really not much there. It's, it's just an image and it keeps wanting to fall over and we Mm -hmm. keep propping it up. (laughs) Mm -hmm. And so, you know, this is, this is true, whether we're a monastic or a lay person. And my, my relation to my loved ones changed when I was a, a lay person. And it changes through the practice. And that change becomes um, a love for every living being. And it, you, you think of you know, your actions from a place of selflessness and from a place of how can I benefit people? And then, you know, of course, the shift into monastic life is a is a grand support for that but that is also it depends on where our mind is i mean there were amazing lay disciples uh, in the canon and you know don't let lay life be um an excuse (laughs) it's not it's not a good one (laughs) and keep on going with that idea you know um that's exactly it. Look at the motivation and recognize that, you know, keep, keep looking at the nature of suffering. Why do we pick things up? Why do we pick up some activity or some, you know, 
for what purpose? And when we really are um, letting go of, you know, this self-interest and this, this belief that I have to be something and we stop propping that up, we're so much more free, happy and content. And we're so much more able to love fully um, with, a, with a kind of generosity and um, true caring. So I think you're on the right track. Mm-hmm. Thank you. Appreciate yeah. it. Yeah. Um, Jesse? Thank you, and I'll try to be quick. Um, but uh, just to follow on that a little bit is, is a question that concerns me a lot and you know, that I bump up against a lot, which is how to kind of realize these teachings in a context like work where there's just an incredible expectation that you put on this identity of your conventional self with you know, that you're a predictable uh, player or, or even in social situations where people expect you to be, you know, the person they've always known you to be. Mm-hmm. And uh, I find that sometimes my practices of non-self, I can make some progress perhaps alone. And then when I'm in these situations, it goes out the window. Maybe I can recenter mm-hmm. myself, but it's like, how do I keep that grounding in, in the moment in, in those types of contexts? Thank you. Yeah, that's exactly the challenge. And it's true that the world keeps trying to pull us in the other direction, uh, especially the kind of rewards that are given for work. You know, they, they want to capitalize on our fears and our desires and our identification as, as a self. And so going against the stream of that, uh, can be really difficult, but it can also be incredibly rewarding, even in the moment. Because if you come, if you can recenter yourself and you can come from that place responding to the situation, you're going to respond differently and better. And you're going to respond in a way that might even cause other people to open their eyes. You'll be a better team member, a better leader a better everything if you, if you get yourself out of the way. And it's, um, yeah, it's definitely part of the practice, uh, regardless of what the situation is in our life. If we take this one seriously and we pursue it, there's going to be great gains. Anything over there, Sarah, that you're seeing? No? Holly? Hi, hi. Uh, this has been a wonderful four sessions. I really like the once a week sessions. It gives me time to practice and digest. It's really perfect for me. Thank mm-hmm. you. Um, I was uh, reflecting on this morning's hike I shall not grasp the body. There shall be no consciousness of mind dependent on the body. Mm-hmm. And I just kind of teasing out 
that I have trained to being, I've trained myself to be mindful of the body in like the uh, mindfulness of meditation guidelines, right? Mm -hmm. So is it saying my awareness of the world not be dependent on the body? Is it me not anchored or tethered to the body? Uh, I was kind of like teasing it out what I'll do in meditation to calm the bodily formation. Right. And how that related to this. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah. I think you're observing the body and you're just letting what's coming through it arise and cease and you're not picking it up as me or mine. Yeah. When I did that on the hike, it was a little, it was interesting. And so I felt lighter and insubstantial. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Nice. Okay. Um, We're going to have a meditation. We're running a little, I don't know. I've kind of lost track of the time thing. So we'll see how it goes. (laughs) We'll have some meditation and then, Um, probably about 20 minutes in small groups. So find a comfortable position with your spine straight. And tune into your breathing. And in this meditation, we're going to bring our attention to the elements as found in the body and around us. So we'll start with the earth element. And the primary characteristic of earth element is hardness. So from the top of our head, we can experience the hardness, the hardness of our skull, the hardness of our teeth. You might touch them with your tongue or click them together and notice the hardness. The hardness of earth element in your neck and in your shoulders, hardness in your upper arms, your lower arms, and in your hands. And just consider that without earth element. These hands wouldn't be able to do much of anything without that hardness. And then we observe hardness in the torso, spine, the breastbone, the other solid components. Hardness in the abdomen. in the upper legs, in the lower legs, 
and hardness in the feet. And this earth element in the body is the same as the earth element outside the body, the rocks, the trees, the earth itself. There's, there's earth element in the food that we take in and in what we excrete out. A constant exchange of minerals and other aspects of earth element. So that we see that the earth element inside and the earth element outside are the same. If we don't take in earth element, if we don't eat for a few weeks or months, we cannot live. You know, from the bottom of our feet, we're going to notice the, the water element. Its properties are cohesion and liquidity and wetness. And there's water throughout the body. It can be as much as 75% of the body. And we find it in our feet and the blood, the softness, the squishy parts, and in the lower legs, the water element, in the upper legs, water element in the abdomen, there's the bladder, blood, and Urine, I mean. And then the, the torso, the juices for digestion, the water element in the upper arms the lower arms and the hands, your sweat, pus, water element in the, in the neck, saliva, water element in the head, tears, There's water element inside the body and outside the body. If we even went for a few days without drinking water, we would probably not last very long. It's a constant exchange. Water coming in and water going out. Not me, not mine, just 
water element. There's no self. Not in the lakes or the streams or the rain and the clouds or in the body. It's the same. And from the top of the head, noticing the fire element, warmth. chemical reactions. You feel the heat on the skin. Of the head and the neck, the shoulders, the arms and hands. fire element in the torso, the operation of the heart, digestion in the abdomen, part of the fire element. Some warmth through the legs, the upper part, the lower parts, and in the feet. That fire element comes from the sun, from the warmth outside, when the fire element is excited, it's dangerous sometimes, <clears throat> when we get too warm or too cold, we suffer. They have a very small range actually for comfort and health in the body. Not this fire element, this too is impersonal and not self. Same internally as externally. When we take in the heat, we take in the sun. We can't live without it. Now from the bottom of our feet, traveling up the body, we notice the air element, our cavities in the body, where there's movement, motion, motion in the body. It's part of the air moving the wind and the feet and the legs. The air movement as we go up into the abdomen and the chest, particularly with the breath, the most powerful air element action in the body. That breath goes through the whole body, the 
the upper arms, the lower arms and the hands. Shoulders, neck and head. You feel that breath, that breath, the breathing, the air. We can only live for a few minutes without air. Exchange with the air in the world, the air that's been breathed by other living beings. Impersonal, not self. Not me, not mine. Just conditions upon which this living being depends. And then from the top of the head, noticing the space. Space inside the skull and the mouth and the nose and the nasal passages and the ear canals and space inside. The torso. Abdomen. Space in the arms and hands, the legs and feet, and space all around us. You're sitting in space, stretching out. Limitless, or it seems so. Increasing. Even as we as we sit here, so they tell us. And the space inside and the space outside, and they're different from one another, and certainly not self. But the, the sensing of that vastness of space around us kind of puts this body into context. And as we take in that broader perspective, you can shift to the position of that which is seeing, knowing, aware, consciousness. The knowing. And we can rest there. And knowing that's not contained in the body, 
awareness. And does this knowing recognize these elements for what they are? And recognize the peace that arises, knowing peace. happy and content, at ease and aware. Now we're going to gradually come back to our own heart. You'll notice if there's a shift back to the body, back to sitting, feeling the hardness. the solidity. And when you're ready, coming back to our shared space, opening the eyes.
a little taste of the elements. And now we'll ask Sarah to create the breakout rooms and take some time to share with each other. There's a, a reflection I'd like you to share about just a practice that you've been that you've used with regard to non-self and some results. And Sarah will also put that, there it is, in chat. And then we'll have a few minutes at the end to ask, answer a few more questions. So we'll keep this time together short to make sure each of you has a chance to say something and, and then come back together. And um, remember to keep things confidential. As soon as people start coming back, then we can invite questions and just, yeah, take a few. Great. I'll close the rooms now and they'll all automatically come back within 60 seconds. Great. Thank you, Sarah. Yeah, of course. Thank you. Thank you for, for this course. Um, and I really love the 12, the 12 So as, as people are coming back in, we have a few minutes for questions before, um, before we close. I want to also say that I really appreciate all of your attendance and questions and practice. It's been a, a real delight to meet with you. So I think we have a little over 10 minutes. Uh, Lori? Hi. <laughs> Thank Hi. you, Aya. Thank you so much. This course has been phenomenal, really incredible. Um, I um, was working, I, I uh, didn't have much chance this last week, but I was working with um, uh, the, the sense organs, the, the uh, ears and hearing. And I was mm -hmm. able to feel that I, I could just let the sounds wash over me. And um, that, uh, that then um, my 
experiences of vision and um, just body sensation were, were stronger. Um, but I was hard to, and it was hard to incorporate other sense organs. Um, I hadn't had um, an experience of being able to not get hooked into seeing, or if I could do that, be able to do that with, with hearing at the same time. Mm. Yeah, you don't need to. I think it's probably easier, not just easier, but maybe more useful to take them, kind of you turn your attention to the site and, and then really try to put it in context and, you know, see the, if there's any desire to grasp it, to cling, and then what it feels like to make that suggestion to let it go. So it's not, it's not, um, I mean, these practices obviously can be done in different ways. And you try things and you see what's helpful. What, what helps the mind to become calm? What helps the mind to, to step back and really observe and investigate this truth of non-self? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. You're welcome. Mm-hmm. Sarah, are there any questions in the chat? <coughs> Excuse me. Anyone else like to ask? Yes, Amanda. Is it Amanda? Yes. <laughs> I need new glasses. Sorry. <laughs> I've got a question following on from Laurie's. Um, I've also been working with um, the six senses Mm -hmm. uh, and it's been just a really um, fruitful practice. Um, So thank you. Um, I've been really playing with working with the mind Mm -hmm. and This is tricky for me, <laughs> um, but it feels really rich ground. Um, and I've also been playing with trying to take that into the everyday. I was really inspired by Tejanaya, um, his writing about this, about how he's played with this. Um, and I'm also interested in how what I, I noticed that the other senses really play into the thought stream. And so there is this dance going on um, when I put my attention to to the mind. So I'm just Mm -hmm. interested in if you've got any suggestions to continue this practice. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, I, um, I think you probably have already observed that as you do it in meditation, things are slower and easier to kind of really, um, take in fully and then when we're doing it as we're moving through the world um, there can be a tendency for 
experienced also sort of slow down. Like, you know, like if we're out walking and we're really paying attention to what's moving through the mind, how what we're experiencing through the senses is landing in the mind, what that tendency is for wanting to, to pull it towards us or push it away. And so it's this, this kind of like allowing mindfulness, if we have the space, allowing mindfulness to be really clear and that observation to kind of slow things down because there's, you know, our, our senses anyway are constantly filtering things out. And so we can, we can increase that filtering process and pay more attention to one thing and let a whole bunch of other things slide by. And that way, you know, really look at it, like what's attractive about this? Am I seeing this as it is? How is the, the concept of Anatta playing in this, in this instance? I think that that's basically what I would uh, suggest trying. Yes, Sarah. One question in the chat. Can you speak more about the practice of feeding one's demons? Mm -hmm. Yeah, feeding, feeding your demons is a process that Lama Sultramalioni developed based on the ancient practice of Cho in the Tibetan tradition, which is about, you know, turning towards the the challenges, the dukkha, the, um, the aspects that arise as threatening perhaps, but they don't even have to be threatening. Um, but what we see as the, um, you might say the personification behind our dukkha. And what she's done with it is to develop a series of questions that we can ask ourselves, first of all, as we focus on the felt sense in the body. And then we, we, um, we imagine the demon in front of us or, um, you know, we kind of invite it to come out and as a, as a vision of a living being sitting in front of us, facing us. And we ask it certain questions and then we trade places with it and, and answer those same questions from feeling ourselves inside the skin of that being. And that can be very surprising sometimes. And it is, it is an intuitive process. It's a, it's a process of allowing um, the answers to come from deep within us. It's not intellectual. And therefore we can discover things that are um, sort of under the surface. And the questions are very well, well crafted. Uh, we, we then, after we get the answers, we use the answer to the last question is what would, what would you feel when you get what you need? And that's the substance, whether that I would feel loved or safe or happy or content or relieved or whatever. That's when, when we come back to our own seat, that's what we feed. 
this demon being. I've had demons that are small children or animals. They're not necessarily ferocious or ugly. Um, but then, you know, the the feeding, the giving of a of an unlimited supply of love or safety or um, respect or whatever it was that the demon would then feel helps us to see what we believe is missing in ourselves and that it really is available in an unlimited supply. So from my perspective, from seeing things through the Theravada lens or the early Buddhist lens, I see that as first we're, we're with, um, present with and, and getting to know the dukkha. And then when we're asking these questions and getting the answers, we're understanding the cause of the dukkha, second noble truth. So first noble truth, knowing, um, understanding, the dukkha, second noble truth, finding the cause of dukkha. And then the feeding process changes, changes your whole um, feeling. You're in a completely different place. Like 20, 30 minutes later, you know, you start out miserable and you're in peaceful and happy and content, perhaps. But it's just, it's just a complete, just you feel the, cessa the cessation of that dukkha. So third noble truth, experiencing that. And so it's not so simple to find, I find, I believe, find a way to put those first three noble truths into action, but that's one way to do it, to really actualize it, to really experience them in a, in a session. And we start to understand some of the internal structure in our own minds this way and start to unravel some of the knots. And I would really recommend reading her book, Feeding Your Demons. And she's got many courses and, and uh, people who are certified at facilitating uh, this process for people. And so there's a lot of resource there that you can find if you, if you find that, that that particular modality is helpful. So I think we've come to the point in time when I'm going to wish you all well in your practice. And um, I hope to uh, cross your path again. Uh, you are welcome to contact us at, karuna, at info at karunabv.org if you have questions or um, wishes to know more about the monastery or you can really uh, find out almost everything on the website except the direct experience. <laughs> so, and there is Sutta Study on Wednesday nights and a Saturday morning program if you're interested in, in uh, joining us. Karuna BV, for Karuna Buddhist Vihara, karunabv.org. So take care, everyone. Thank you so much, Sarah, and Forrest for recording today. Bye-bye, everyone. Thank you. Bye -bye. Thank you. Bye-bye. Thank you. Thanks so much. Thank, thank you, you Aya. Thank you very much. Thank you. Bye. And thank you.
and before before I said, I just wanted to take a moment to thank you from BCBS as well. Um, it's been such a joy to support this retreat. Um, and just wanted to say a couple words about the practice of generosity and um, and Donna, um, which is positioned as the first, the first virtue to be cultivated on the Bodhisattva path, uh, one of the 10 perfections. Um, and we're so grateful for you, uh, to you for joining us for these four weeks with Ayas and Sika. Um, and Donna has helped sustain, has helped sustain monastics and monastic communities and study communities for centuries. Um, and it's really wonderful practice of generosity of coming together in community in mutual support. Um, so um, Aya Santisca is not contracted with BCBS. Um, we rely on your generosity to, to, to make possible um, the continued teaching and flourishing of the Dharma of of courses and of retreats in this way. Um, so tomorrow you'll receive a closing letter from BCBS with information on how you can donate to ISM Chisica, how you can support her and how you can support the um, Karuna Nisahara and also how you can continue to support BCBS. You'll get a link where you, where you can um, offer your support in that way. And then also a link to a survey where you can share your feedback, anything that um, that you loved about this retreat and, and, and this course, anything that you um, would maybe like to change, any courses you'd like to see in the future. We really love to hear from you and take your, um, your comments into account when we're planning our year ahead, especially as we transition back to offering in-person and online um, courses and retreats. So I'll just put the links to those in the chat, um, though you'll also get them tomorrow. Feel free to be in touch with any questions. And thank you again for being a part of the BCBS Sangha. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you for all your Thank you so much. <laughs> yes, for all your work. Bye-bye. Bye. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.